for waiting. Hi, everyone. So far, we have 14 people. We'll wait another minute. How's everyone doing? Okay, I guess. <laughs> That's good. People have cat fever. Um, am I in the call properly? Can you hang on? Let's see. Can you see me? Um, so, yeah, I can see you. Okay, let's see. Okay, we'll just wait one more second. Well, <laughs> a figurative second, a Shakespearean second. Okay, I guess we should start. Um, Questions, comments, concerns, or should we just go straight to where we left off? Speak now or hold your peace until you speak. Um, I guess something kind of funny that I thought of while I was going through those readings you sent us. Uh huh. I went through, I can't remember, can't remember the name. It was like Ro Rossi or something like that. And Coley? Yes. Yeah. Yep. And she brought up a point that was, it was like inflatus or something like that. And it talked a little bit about how Cleopatra's vision of Antony is sort of blown out of proportion. And that just made me, that just made me think of whenever Cleopatra sees Antony, she sees him as one of those like caricature drawings you see on like fairgrounds. And uh -huh. that's, that made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, she's a, she was a really interesting, um, amazing Shakespearean critic, uh, really, really good at, at talking about his language and uh, seeing, seeing how that language uh, gave you character, gave you everything. Um, so good, I'm glad. Uh, what are other people thinking of the reading? which of course you will have to do for your paper because you will be talking about critics on your paper. So, okay, I see that, um, good. The readings are so deep that you can only think about how deep they are. <laughs> All right, let's go to um, where we left off, which is um, Act 3, Scene 5. 
Um, and um, volunteers, we need Anina Barbas. Um, how about really no volunteers? You really just want to be called on? I'll read it. Okay, Talia, you're Ina Barbas. Who will be Eros? Okay, good. Uh, go for it, Grace. And um, so it's a short scene. Uh, Ina Barbas. How now, friend Eros? How now, friend Sorry, what? Yeah, I was, I was wondering how now, friend Grace. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, I was just muted. <laughs> There's strange news come, sir. What, man? Caesar and Lepidus have made wars upon Pompey. This is all. What is the success? Caesar, having made use of him in the wars against Poppy, Pompey, presently denied him rivality. Rival uh, I think we say rivalty, but rival rivality. there is the I there, right? Rivality. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Um, would not let him partake in the glory of the action and not resting here accuses him of letters he had formerly wrote formerly wrote to Pompey upon his own appeal seizes him so the poor third is up till death enlarge his confine so do I, oh do I read the words in the brackets maybe that's uh, a dumb question but what, which edition do you have yeah you do um which edition are you using um I have the folder yeah, so the brackets mean they're just alerting you to um, editorial intervention, but most of those editorial interventions are fine. They're the same thing in the, in the uh, Arden. They're the notes at the bottom of the page where they, where they make changes also. So, uh, okay. yeah. Um, that, oh. So just notice what's happened is that um, between the, the last scene and this, Lots of stuff, we're being caught up on a whole lot of history um, very quickly just in this conversation between Ina Barbas and Eros. And uh, what we're finding is that Lepidus and Octavius are um, no longer allies and that um, uh, Lepidus is now um, imprisoned and uh, the and the triumvirate is now uh do over it do over i don't know um do over it um and uh now it's only antony and caesar who are left and that's what enobarbus will now comment on so enobarbus then world thou hast a pair of chaps no more and throw between them all the food thou hast they'll grind the one the other where's antony He's so, wait, paraphrase that. Me or anyone? Anyone. This may be just me, but when it says thou hast a pair of chops, is that like saying, you know, if you got the balls big enough to do this? Or am I... <laughs> if you have the chops for it. No, um, chaps means um, uh, upper and lower jaw. So all that's left in the world are the two jaws. There used to be three, um, not three jaws, but um, there used to be a stable triangle 
of the triumvirate, that no, no member of the triumvirate could try to get complete power. It's like separation of powers now. That is that there's a, the way the separation of powers supposedly works is there's Congress, the executive and the courts. And the idea would be that the natural, it's, it's natural to not want someone to take complete power, to take supreme power, uh, to declare, for example, that they can close Congress whenever they want. And if you have a triangle, then if one member of the triangle tries to take supreme power, um, the other two members will oppose that member and prevent that member from taking supreme power. So the idea of the triumvirate was that Caesar, Lepidus, and Antony were ruling jointly and not, no single one of them could try to take supreme power because the other two would oppose them. But now Antony is, is gone and um, Caesar, and it's simply Caesar versus Lepidus and Caesar takes over from Lepidus, um, imprisons Lepidus. So now you don't have a triangle, you have um, only a pair of chaps, that is of jaws, that are going to <coughs> bite down on each other. And um, so this is politics as orthodonture, you could say. And um, so what Ina Barbas is saying is the world has now been reduced to something that is um, under the um, threat of a pair of chaps, a pair of jaws. Thou hast a pair of chaps, no more, nothing beyond that pair of chaps. Thou hast a pair of chaps, no more. And so who are the pair, who are the two chaps? Who, which chaps are these chaps? Anyone? Antony and Caesar. Right, so Antony and Caesar are all that's left and throw between them all the food thou hast, they'll grind the one, the other. That is, um, no matter how much you put between them, um, both how much you give them to do and also how much you try to bribe them or satisfy them, um, nevertheless, those two jaws are going to come together and start grinding each other. Um, bruxing, I believe, is the technical term in dentistry. Um, they're gonna start grinding each other. Um, and then Ina Barbas asks that frequently asked question in this play, where's Antony? So Eros replies. He's walking in the garden, thus and spurns the rush that lies before him, cries fool Lepidus, and threats the throat of that his officer that murdered Pompey. Okay, so here again, we're getting very quick um, update. Um, one thing to notice is, where's Antony? Well, where isn't he? Where's Eros been all this while? Where are they when they're having this conversation? They're in Antony's house. In? Rome? No. Alexandria? In Alexandria. Oh, right. So, and Eros has never left Alexandria. So, um, well, he may have, but we don't know that he has. But at any rate, they're in Alexandria. 
and Eros is now able to tell Ina Barbas where Antony is, which is he's in his garden. Um, he's heard the news too. So that means that Antony is also in Alexandria. So he had been in Athens the last time we saw him in the previous scene, um, sending Octavia to go talk to Caesar. Now, however, here he is in Alexandria. And then we find out more news, which Shakespeare kind of doesn't want you to pay very much attention to. He's doing the history, but this is not Antony um, at his best. Um, one of his officers, it turns out, mur murdered Pompey. So um, after the party and the truce and the peace and Antony getting his father's house and so on, um, it turns out now that Pompey is murdered. And um, whether Antony wanted Pompey murdered or not, uh, Shakespeare doesn't say, um, but historically he did. So um, Shakespeare is trying to, you know, you do have to distinguish between the historical Antony and the um, transcendent Antony of Antony and Cleopatra, Shakespeare's Antony versus the mere empirical Antony that we don't have to spend much time um, thinking about. Um, but in Shakespeare's Antony, it's at least ambiguous that he threats the throat of that his officer that murdered Pompey. Sounds like he's saying it was the wrong thing to do. Um, on the other hand, as you know from Richard II, um, Bolingbroke, or now Henry IV, exiles the person whom he uh, manipulated into murdering Richard. So, and with that, that uh, conversation that Ventidius and Silius had that we looked at last time, where um, it finds out, where we find out their view, um, their cynical view, that leaders get the credit for what their subordinates do but manage to um, shift the blame to their subordinates when things go wrong. Um, again, thank goodness leaders aren't doing that anymore. But um, that, that's another hint, you know, partly for the part of the audience that actually knows the history. Shakespeare can't play too fast and loose with it because some people in the audience are, um, uh, are, are well-educated and they know the history and they know um, what Antony actually did, but Shakespeare is at least making it ambiguous as to whether Antony ordered Pompey's um, death or not. And the fact that he's doing it means that we can take it that Shakespeare's preference is that Antony is just upset about it, but hasn't actually ordered it, that it was an officer who did it wrongly. Um, what's one reason that, what's one way that Shakespeare might have um, wanted us, sorry, I'm asking this question wrong. How does Shakespeare prepare the moment of Pompey's murder by a subordinate? How does he prepare us to think that Antony might have no, not have known about it in advance? Another way of asking this would be, why might this actually be um, uh, turn around, you know, what goes around comes around? Um, the murder of Pompey. Um, well, Pompey and Menace had that conversation about, like, Menace was like, oh, now is the time to, like, you know, like, show force. And Pompey's like, well, if you'd done it and not told me, then that would have been great. But now that you've told me, we can't do it. Exactly. 
Exactly. So that is therefore setting up the, this play um, as a world in which officers doing things without getting permission to do them um, is a thing. And um, not only is it a thing, but it's a thing that um, it might be uh, very wise to do. So the idea then that Antony didn't know and that um, his officer killed Pompey in the same way that Minas should have killed Antony and the rest of the triumvirate, um, that at least is in the audience's mind. And that would be a way of, of defending Shakespeare's Antony, especially since he doesn't approve the way Pompey said he would approve. Um, okay, Ina Barbas. A great navy's right. For Italy and Caesar, more to Medius, my lord desires you presently. My news I might have told hereafter. Told me not, but let it be. Bring me to Antony. Come, sir. Okay, so here again quickly, we find out now that Antony is going to go against Caesar. Our great navy's rigged. Um, that is, it's set to go, um, to go and um, oppose what Caesar is doing now that Lepidus is out of the picture. Okay, we need Agrippa, Messinus, and Caesar. Um, Nicole, you can be uh, Agrippa, Messinus. Okay, Matthew and Caesar, uh, Sophia, good. And um, I think we'll need an Octavia as well. Um, Octavia, someone. Okay, Cassie. Okay, go for it. Uh, contemning Rome, he has done all this and more in Alexandria. Here's the matter. So, so notice this is right in the middle of a conversation that they're coming in. So he's done all this, what I've just told you about, and more, and he's done it contemning Rome out of, out of um, aggression towards Rome or out of contempt for Rome. Okay, go on. Uh, in the marketplace, on a tribunal silvered, Cleopatra and himself in chairs of gold were publicly enthroned. At the feet sat um, Caesarion, whom they call my father's son, and all the unlawful issue that their lust since then hath made between them. Unto her he gave the establishment of Egypt, made her of lower Syria, Cyprus, Lydia, absolute queen. Okay, so stop right there. Um, thank you. Um, so notice something really shocking from a dramatic point of view has happened here, which is if you're watching this play and you know that Antony is going to go back to Alexandria and you know that Antony and Cleopatra have been separated from act one and you know that Cleopatra is thinking about Antony and wanting him to come back and looking forward to his coming back and you know that Ina Barbas says he's definitely going to go back and you know that Antony himself says, yes, I'm gonna go back. Everything is being set up here for the reunion scene between Antony and Cleopatra. That is gonna be like the keystone scene of the play when Antony and Cleopatra um, reunite. Uh, you all know that song, Reunited? No? You're lucky. Um, so, um, Shakespeare's done everything that a dramatist would do to set up the, the um, great set scene of their reunion. 
last we saw Antony, not the last we heard of him, but the last we saw of him, he was still in Athens um, with Octavia. Now we simply get by report that they have reunited. And the report is by someone who's extremely unfriendly to them, who's very angry. And the reunion is basically, they did all this in a marketplace. Um, they were, they were um, put in chairs of gold in a marketplace and um, all their kids were there. Caesarian, whom they call my father's son, who's his father? Who does he mean when he says whom they call my father's son? Julius Caesar? Yeah, so his adoptive father. So Caesarian was Julius Caesar's son by Cleopatra. And in a sense, he's a little bit of a threat to, um, and, uh, to, to Caesar. And um, so he insists that um, Caesarian is only called his father's son, but he does call Julius Caesar his father. So he's not, in fact, Julius Caesar's son, but he calls Julius Caesar his father. Caesarian is, in fact, Julius Caesar's son, but he's trying to um, weaken that bond. And then all their other children and all the unlawful issue that their lust since then hath made between them. So other children who Antony and Cleopatra have had. And then he makes her um, queen of Egypt and of Syria and of Cyprus and of Lydia. Um, and Messinas, um, okay, Messinas, pick up. This in the public eye? Uh, in the common show place where they exercise, his sons he there proclaimed the kings of kings, great Media, Parthia, and Armenia. He gave to Alexander, to Ptolemy he assigned Syria, um, Cilicia, and Phoenicia. Yep. I don't know if I captured that. Um, <laughs> she, the, in the abilities of the goddess Isis, that day appeared and oft before gave audience, as is reported so. Okay, so all, of this, so all of this is from North. Um, and uh, again, we're just getting it if um, we're getting it um, as, uh, as description. We're not seeing it. Um, LV says, I just have one question. If Annie wants Pompey killed, why does he want to do that? Because that leads to the imprisonment of Lepidus and then eventually the war between Antony and Cleopatra. Then why would Antony want to go against Caesar when it's clear he's not ready for that? Wouldn't it be safer to just keep the triangle separation power so that Antony could safely stay with Cleopatra, knowing that the power structure is stable enough, he doesn't have to worry. Um, yeah, you're, you're making him more rational than he probably is. Um, they're all rivals and Antony, the real historical Antony had a temper. And um, the idea that Lepidus oppose him in anything um, is what might be a reason for him to turn against him. So it's politically a bad move, um, but it may, might very well appear to Antony that he is, um, remember his soldier, remember what Pompey says about him, which is that his soldiership is twice the other twain. That is that Antony is, um, Antony alone is worth Caesar plus Lepidus times two. Um, so it, uh, one reason to do it would be that Antony himself, the historical Antony, might have um, thought he would be 
the dominant figure. I don't actually know the details, um, and North and um, um, the, the other sources, I don't think go into that much detail about it, but the real Antony did a lot of political, um, had a lot of political aggression within him and lots of, you know, it's like asking why does Trump fire people? Um, Antony did a lot of political um, removal of people that he fell out with. And um, I'll try to find out for next time uh, what, what current thinking about why Antony might have wanted Lepidus killed is. Um, but uh, Shakespeare is interested simply in what it does to the triangle. Um, okay, so um, go on, Messinus. Uh, Again, Rome be thus informed. Who, queasy with his insolence already, will their good thoughts call from him? The people knows it and have now received his accusations. Who does he accuse? Caesar, and that having in Sicily Sextus Pompeius spoiled, we had not rated him his part of the isle. Then does he say he lent me some shipping unrestored. Lastly, he frets that Lepidus of the Triumvirate should be disposed and being that we detain all his revenue. Sir, this should be answered. Tis done already, and the messenger gone. I have told him Lepidus was grown too cruel, that he, that he his high authority abused and did deserve his change. For what I have conquered, I grant him part. But then in his Armenia and other of his conquered kingdoms, I demand the like. Hey, hang on a sec. Hang on just one second. Professor Quinney. Yes. Do you know why Antony might have wanted Pompey killed? Uh, I should know. Um, I mean, I don't know if they had history. I don't think they had history the way Antony and Cicero had history. Yeah, but they had that house. Uh, and, and just, I, I'll look it up for you, but uh, uh, all I can think of is just general elimination of rivals. Yeah. Uh, why, is there a suggestion in the play that? Oh yeah, the suggestion in the play is that, Ant well, Antony is angry at his officer who killed Pompey. Right. Um, and so the question is, why did Antony's officer kill Pompey? Right, right. And in North, um, the suggestion is Antony actually wanted Pompey killed. Right, but um, we just don't know why. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, I'll look it up. Okay. Sorry, I don't know the answer. All right. Um, so, um, yeah, so here is, you get um, the very thing that um, um, Antony's complained about to Octavia, uh, Caesar is repeating those complaints. Um, and he's not happy that Lepidus has been deposed, we already know that, and that we detain all his revenue, that is that we are not um, sharing with Antony the third of the revenue of the kingdom that went to Lepidus. So, I'm sorry, go on from there, Agrippa. Just from Sir, this should be answered. I know we did it, but start, it, start there again. Sir, this should be answered. Uh, Tis done already, and the messenger gone. I have told him Lepidus was grown too cruel, that he his high authority abused and did deserve his change. For what I have conquered, I grant him part. 
but then in his Armenia and other of his conquered kingdoms, I demand the like. He'll never yield to that. Nor must not then be yielded to in this. So here comes Octavia. Hail Caesar and my Lord. Hail most dear Caesar. That ever I should call the castaway, be cast away. You have not called me so, nor have you cause. Why have you stolen upon us thus? You come not like Caesar's sister. The wife of Antony should have an army for an usher, and the knives of horse to tell of her approach, long ere she did appear. The trees by the way should have borne men, and expectation fainted, longing for what it had not. Okay, stop there for a second. Yeah. Um, so why is he calling her a castaway? What does he know that she doesn't? About Caesar, uh, Antony and Cleopatra. Yeah, that Antony in the meantime has gone back to Alexandria. So he's about to tell her this, but there she is appearing and he says that ever I should call the castaway. And she says, why would you do that? Everything's fine. And then he gets a false answer, which is because you're coming here without <coughs> all the pomp and circumstance um, <laughs> that the wife of Antony should have. Um, both the sister of Caesar and the wife of Antony. Then notice, this is, this I think is his longest speech. I'm not sure, but um, I think it's his longest speech. And um, what he's saying here um, is his version of Ina Barbus's uh, barge she sat in like a burnished throne speech. That is, um, the trees by the way should have borne men everyone should have been climbing in trees to see you there and expectation fainted longing for what it had not. So that's like Antony watching Cleopatra, um, the, the breezes um, um, cooling what they seemed to um, um, warm and um, the whole idea of expectation fainting, just everything becoming so ethereal. This is Caesar's version of uh, that speech. Okay, go on from there. Uh, nay, the dust should have ascended to the roof of heaven, raised by your populous troops, but you are come a market maid to Rome, and have prevented the ostentation of our love, which, left unshown, is often left unloved. We should have met you by sea and land, supplying every stage with an augmented greeting. What does that remind you of? Oh, when he says that they'll, like, fight them by land, but not by sea. Okay, there, um, the question of sea and land comes up there, exactly. Um, but also the idea that there would be a greeting at every stage, that would mean he's sending messengers to her at every stage. Again, like the messengers Antony and Cleopatra are sending to each other. He shall have each day a separate message or I'll unpeople Egypt. So the idea that um, you're um, sending messengers to greet the person who's absent, um, who's traveling, and that you check in with them every day. You send messengers every day um, as part of your expression of your love for them. So again, that's Caesar's version of what we've already seen between Antony and Cleopatra. Octavia? Good, my lord, to come thus I was not constrained, but did it on my free will. 
My lord, Mark Antony, hearing that you prepared for war, acquainted my grieved ear withal, whereon I begged his pardon for return. Which soon he granted, being an abstract between his lust and him. Do not say so, my lord. I have eyes upon him, and his affairs come to me on the wind. Where is he now? Hang hang on to that amazing um, line. So this is Caesar as the... um, Remember, he's the figure who always beats Antony against the odds. And here he's given, he's describing himself. And what he's describing here literally is that he has spies. Um, like the Fred Astaire song, I've got my eyes on you. I've set my spies on you. So he's got spies. He always knows what Antony is doing. Um, Antony can't do anything without someone reporting it to Caesar. Um, but just that, those lines, I have eyes upon him and his affairs come to me on the wind. That gives you a sense of Caesar's um, quasi-supernatural power in this play, um, his quasi-supernatural knowledge. That is that um, he, is, um, he is going to be described as someone who uh, can do things that no human being can do. So his affairs come to me on the wind. Later, Antony will say, um, this speed of Caesar's carries beyond belief. That is, no one can believe uh, how, no one can, it's as though Caesar has superpowers. Supernatural is the wrong word, but it's, he has superpowers. Um, he knows what's going on at a distance and he can get from one place to another with incredible speed, with, with unbelievable speed. Uh, so this is where we're first hearing Caesar described this way. I have eyes upon him and his affairs come to me on the wind. And then what question does he ask? Where is he? Exactly. Where is he now? Where is he now? Octavia? So can I just ask a question? Of course. Does Octavia, like, care about Mark Antony because I had assumed that she doesn't she's kind of a non-character in comparison with like I guess Cleopatra is the closest like foil or like parallel character for her and Octavia is just like not very interesting um but this is the first time that I've gotten the sense that she like like it almost seemed like she couldn't have been wronged by Mark Antony because she like didn't care enough about Mark Antony to like really have any loyalty to the idea that he cared about her in return. I don't know if that's a like a dumb question, but I'm having mm-hmm. trouble like figuring out how invested she is yeah. in this conversation. Like I understand that she understands, like it's clear that she understands that she's sort of a political pawn here. Um, I think that that's clear, and I guess she cares about it to that extent, but in terms of having actual emotions, I don't know if she just doesn't, she's just not characterized very strongly, or if I'm just, like, not seeing it. No, she's, so she isn't characterized very strongly. Um, she is, what, she, she is a very, again, a, of a coldly hold and sober disposition. Holy cold. Um, not coldly hold. Uh, a holy cold and sober disposition. Um, but she, you know, in the scenes where we see her and Antony together, it's clear that she, um, 
believes herself, thinks of herself as um, his loyal um, spouse. And um, a thing to consider is that Cleopatra's first husband was um, was her brother Ptolemy, right? Everyone knows this, that um, the way Egyptian, as with Incan, Egyptian um, uh, rulers, uh, brother and sister would unite uh, and, um, and uh, produce children. Uh, so there is an explicit policy of incest in um, anthropologically this, this is, uh, happens um, in certain kinds of society. Um, but it doesn't sound like Cleopatra was really that interested in her brother sexually. Um, the brother-sister relation between Octavia and Octavian in some sense has to be mirroring the brother-sister or even representing. Oh, Professor Quinney. Oh, yeah, so here's what I found out. Um, <laughs> as near as I can tell, Antony um, would have uh, been um, aggrieved with Pompey because uh, in the civil, war, the civil wars, it was Caesar versus Pompey mm -hmm. before Caesar became the dictator. Yeah. With Caesar versus Pompey, and Antony was Caesar's top general, right? And was loyal to Caesar. So it's just going back to Pompey's father, and and and. Uh, Are we talking about Pompey Junior? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the, no, the Pompey from Antony and Cleopatra. Well, the Pompey from Antony and Cleopatra is. No, that's the son. That's the son. Yeah. Okay, I apologize. Never mind. No, it's okay. Never mind. I'll try again. All right, don't worry. Um, all right, so um, at any rate, what you can see in the brother-sister relationship, uh, and, and you know that Shakespeare is interested in those relationships. That is, um, the uh, similar brother-sister relationship is in what tragedy? where a brother is, is warning his Hamlet. sister again. Hamlet. Yeah, yeah, um, it, it would be uh, kind, of, uh, kind of obvious to imagine the same actors playing Caesar and um, Octavia as had played a couple of years earlier, eh, five years earlier, um, had played Laertes and Ophelia and um, so here, though, that is also a kind of representation of a different kind of affection, a different kind of connection than um, the connection between lovers. So that uh, when Hamlet challenges Laertes in, in how much he loves Ophelia or has loved Ophelia, the point is one is sexual passion and the other is um, brother-sister connection. But Antony doesn't love Octavia, he loves Cleopatra. And Octavia is in a lot of ways an Ophelia-like character, um, partly just because she's so self-contained. It doesn't mean that she's not deep, just as Ophelia turns out to be deep after her father has been, has been killed, murdered, uh, whatever you wanna call it. But um, her way 
is to be very self-effacing. And um, being self-effacing is what someone like Laertes wants in a sister and what someone like Octavius wants in a sister, but probably not what someone like Hamlet wants in um, a wife and in a spouse, and certainly not what Antony, someone like Antony wants in an erotic partner. So um, she's, she's a different kind of character, but that doesn't mean that she doesn't love Antony or that she doesn't care about Antony. Um, but we'll see in, in what she says when she gets the news. So where is he now? Um, Octavia answers. My lord in uh, My most wrong sister, Cleopatra hath nodded him to her. He hath given his empire up to a whore, who now are who now are levying the kings of the earth for war. He hath assembled Bacchus the king of Libya, Archelaus of Cappadocia, Philadelphus king of Paphlagonia, the Thracian king of You Adalus. really got the names, didn't you, Sophia? But you're doing great. Um, I was, I, I, I'll admit, I was practicing them. While All right. <laughs> I saw nice. them and I was like, oh God, here they come. <laughs> <laughs> so King Mancus of Arabia, King of Pont, Herod of Jewry, Mithridates, King of Commagene, Palamon, and Amintas, the Kings of Mede, and Lysoenia with a more larger list of septrists. Right. <laughs> nice. So notice that Herod of Jewry is there again. Remember we saw him on Tuesday? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, okay Octavia. I, me, most wretched, that have my heart parted betwixt two friends that does afflict each other. So she's torn, and um, essentially she's calling them both friends, which again makes it feel like um, her relation to her brother is the template for her relation to those who are closest to her. Caesar? Oh, welcome hither. Your letters did withhold our breaking forth till we perceived both how you were wrong led and we in negligent danger. Cheer your heart. Be you not troubled with the time which drives over your content these strong necessities, but let determined things to destiny hold unbewailed their way. Welcome to Rome, nothing more dear to me. You are abused beyond the mark of thought, and the high gods to do you justice makes his ministers of us and those that love you. Best of comfort and ever welcome to us. So he's now um, saying, he's comforting her, but notice that what he's doing is he's saying, um, now I'm going to get revenge on Antony for what he's done to you. So this is very convenient for him, that Antony's abandonment of Octavia means, first of all, that they're no longer linked, that in going against Antony, he would also be going against his sister, which would be a bad thing. Earlier in the play, we saw um, that such connections um, don't in fact prevent wars, that Antony's wife went against Caesar and Antony's brother went against Caesar, um, despite Antony's um, objection to their battle. But now he doesn't even have to worry about that because she's back. And, um, 
And he says, and now we're going to go against Antony to do you justice. So we are made um, ministers. Um, uh, those who love you are made ministers to um, get back at Antony for what he did to you. Um, remember Hamlet saying that um, the heavens have punished me with this and this with me, that I must be their scourge and minister. So um, their agent in doing this. Uh, Agrippa? Welcome, lady. Welcome, dear madam. Each heart in Rome does love and pity you. Only the adulterous Antony, most large in his abominations, turns you off and gives his potent regime regiment to a troll that noises it against us. Octavia. Is it so, sir? Most certain. Sister, welcome. Pray you be ever known to patience, my dearest sister. All right. So now back to Alexandria. We need Cleopatra and Ina Barbas and then Antony and Canidius. Um, can I ask a question first? Yes. So uh, like, I guess I'm just a little confused about how are we supposed to understand the character in the drama? Because I sort of sense that there's a difference between how we understand a character in drama versus how we understand a character in a novel. Maybe because in the novel, um, you know how a character thinks. There, are, there would be explicit um, ways of just writing out how the psych uh, psychological development of a certain person, whereas in drama, we, can, we only have those dialogues and how other people's description, and they might not be true and they might not be totally trustworthy. And I was also thinking like how much um, of interpretation is depending on how an actor does it. Like for example, for um, Octavia, I think uh, I can totally see how she can be played in the holy code way, but I can also see if an actress wants to do a certain way to make her like insincere, like fake, or she doesn't really love Antony, I can see a way to do that as well. So how are we going to just, uh, to, to what extent are we going to take these characters at their words? Yeah, I guess that's the question. Okay, interesting question. Do, um, comments by anyone? Um, I guess like to a certain extent, the fact that like you don't really know and like that point you brought up about how depending on how it was performed, like the meaning might change. Like, I guess that's kind of like a constant in drama that like sometimes there isn't really a set answer and it's kind of up to interpretation. Okay, yeah. Um, I think that's right. I think it's, uh, you know, if you one really interesting uh, experiment that you can do. Well, I mean, everyone, everyone who's seen a Shakespeare play that they've read has seen this happen, um, is to see how 
a good actor makes you see a role differently from the way you saw it before, whether um, in reading it or in having seen a different version of it. And um, a good actor will really make you um, rethink your sense of a character, or at least um, partially rethink your sense of a character. Uh, but there are, and then there's the um, question of what a good director will do, how a director will, um, will encourage an actor to read certain lines. Uh, sometimes you have to know whether uh, an actor is being sarcastic or not, or whether a character is being sarcastic enough. Sometimes you can play lines that seem to have been written straight. You can um, play them for sarcasm. Uh, sarcasm is the most obvious way to um, alter the apparent meaning of lines. Um, you guys all know who John Lithgow is? Uh, yeah, you do, from Back to the Future. So he, he does, um, he's, he's great at sarcasm and he can be given lines and he'll just um, make them mean the opposite of what they seem to mean um, by doing them in a sarcastic way. But there are other more subtle ways that you can affect the meaning of a line. So for example, um, it's possible to say things bitterly that um, most actors don't um, say bitterly. Um, so just, you know, an, an obvious thing would be to say, I love you in a bitter way. So you're reading a play and someone says, oh, I love you. Um, and it's so painful. And if you just put it, have the actor do it in an extremely bitter way, um, it stops sounding appealing, um, like an appeal, and starts sounding like um, um, regret, um, unhappiness over the very fact that, um, that uh, the actor, um, that the character loves the other person. Uh, more info. Well, in historical fact, Sextus Pompeius, was caught in Miletus in 35 BC. He had rebelled against Octavian's rule, yeah. against the triumvirate, and executed without trial by order of Antony. Okay. So that's a historical fact that Antony actually had him killed. Okay. All right. So that makes sense that um, what that the play already has something about how Pompey was um, behaving badly in Sicily. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why in the play, Antony's officer kills Pompey and Antony is now upset that that's happened, but um, there's, Shakespeare leaves it ambiguous as to whether he gave the order or not. Yeah, whereas in fact he did. Yeah, in fact he did give the order. Okay, so the real Antony, the less important Antony, the Antony that doesn't really matter to us, in fact actively had Pompey killed. Um, in the play, his officer did because Pompey was resisting the triumvirate. Um, good. So we have an actual answer. And the reason is simply that, uh, that Pompey uh, had rebelled against the triumvirate. Yeah, and the reason is that Pompey had rebelled against the triumvirate. So he was a common enemy of Octavian. So a common enemy, um, Professor Quinney says, um, of Octavian and Antony. Um, bet you didn't know we called each other professor at home, but what can you do? We do. Um, sign, a, sign a respect, as Ali G says. Um, so, um, the, yeah, um, 
the way you say lines obviously has lots of, um, will we'll do a lot for how a character is represented. But it's also the case that um, the way other characters respond will tell you a lot about how lines should be said. And in fact, we're gonna get, there's gonna be um, an amazing example of this um, later on where, um, uh, I'm just trying to think how much to tell you about this. Ina Barbas will say something and to, someone gives Ina Barbas, a messenger of all people, gives Ina Barbas some news. And Ina Barbas responds immediately to that news. And um, his response, he, his response is um, uh, three words. Um, he just, he, he gives a three word response. And the messenger then says, nay, mock not Ina Barbas. That is, don't, um, nay, mock not Ina Barbas, I tell you true. So, what that seems to mean is that Ina Barbus's response is said in a mocking way. That is the tone of those words, Ina Barbus's three words, um, you'll see it when you get there, but that the tone of those three words is um, one of mockery. And we know that from, um, the, from the, the, his interlocutor's response. Um, and there, I think, is a rare case. I actually had an argument with Harold Bloom about this, and I think I convinced him. Um, there is a rare case where the response is wrong um, and the audience can tell that the response is wrong. That is, that name mock not in a barbus is not a stage direction in the form of a speech the way there are lots and lots of stage directions in, in the form of speeches, like, oh, don't weep. Um, that means that the other character is supposed to be weeping. Um, but mock not in a barbus turns out to be wrong, but it also gives you a sense of the general view that you can tell how an actor is supposed to say at least some lines based on how other actors respond to those lines. Um, Cassie, your hand is up. Yeah, this isn't related at all, but I just wanted to ask, so you described this, like, occurrence with between Octavia and Mark Antony as a helpful coincidence for Caesar. Is it actually coincidental? Um, like, is there any element of sort of throwing Octavia into this situation with the sense that it might go wrong and it might work out well for Caesar politically? Because they did know that Mark Antony was involved with Cleopatra from the get. And it was also relatively clear that Caesar knew from the get that he didn't like Mark Antony and didn't want him around anymore. Mm -hmm. um, okay. so I, I, yeah, I'm not yeah. arguing, like, I know that it wasn't, it wasn't explicitly presented as like sending Octavia off to just like have her be this impetus that he wanted, but I, I don't know, maybe subconsciously if it was an element. It just, it feels a little bit insincere for him to be like, oh, poor Octavia, like, so sad. I'm so sorry this happened to you. And then proceed exactly as he was hoping things were going to work out for the entire play. 
So I think that's a great question. Um, and I also think, in fact, it is related to LV's question, which is that um, when you're watching a play, um, as in real life, your sense of other people is not, you don't get their interiority the way you do in a novel, as LV was saying. That is that in a novel, um, except, except in the case of soliloquies, um, but in a novel, the, a third person novelist or a first person novelist can tell you what's on a character's mind and what other people don't realize are on that character's mind. So um, that's, that is uh, what the novel, that's the great innovation of the novel is that it's so much about what's internal to characters. Whereas in plays, what we're always getting is a perspective outside of the characters that we're watching. But what that also means is that in a play, we are always, remember we talked about how scenes are, um, are basically determined by the groups within a scene. That is that if you have, um, uh, that, that a scene changes when the um, people on stage completely change. However, the audience is part of every scene. We are um, flies on the wall in every single scene in the play so that we are always seeing what's going on from the perspective of those in a scene who are not talking. Every speech that we are listening to, we are listening to from the perspective of someone in the, uh, someone else in the scene, someone who is not talking in the scene. And what that means is that um, our understanding of what's going on is the kind of understanding that other characters, those not speaking at any particular moment, um, the kind of understanding that they are having as well. Obviously, there are ironic moments where we know more than um, a character who isn't speaking. A famous example of this in King Lear is when Lear, um, I'm sorry, when um, Edgar is leading Gloucester up to what Gloucester thinks is the cliff edge, and we're watching that moment, and um, Edgar keeps saying, yes, it's horribly steep, and we're even now at the extreme verge, and we know that Gloucester believes him, but we also know that it's not true. Um, similarly, we know when Antony is reassuring Octavia that he loves her, that he is still planning to go back to Cleopatra. So obviously there are many, many scenes where our perspective is not the perspective of a character to whom the speaking character is speaking, but our perspective is always um, could be said to be the, the perspective of someone who knows what's going on um, at that moment and how they're interpreting what the speaker is saying. Now that goes, to go to Cassie's question, that also goes the other way. And that's what I think is crucial about how drama works, which is, um, and these are very deep questions about how drama works. Um, I, th I think this is uh, really, really worth thinking through. Um, but the other perspective is it's really rare that 
we can, um, that we're not understanding other characters as understanding what's going on the way we do. So if a play is telling us certain things that, for example, um, there's no way that Antony will stay with Octavia, that we can know that both by observing Antony and by hearing what Antony has to say and by hearing what Ina Barbas, who really knows Antony, has to say and how he's responding to Antony's um, various claims about, about um, the loss of Fulvia and the marriage to Octavia and so on, um, we are able to get um, a fix on Antony's character, which is then the fix on his character that we, without even knowing we're assuming it, assume that other perceptive characters have. So Octavia is never established as a perceptive character. And so we don't think that she has that fix on his character. But Caesar is certainly established as a perceptive character from the, from the beginning. And therefore, um, his, we, we project what we know to be the case onto his perceptiveness as well. So that's a long way of saying, yes, Cassie, that's right. That, that um, for an audience, because there is no truth of the matter, um, the only truth is in the audience's mind. Um, but for an audience, um, it's not unexpected. Caesar can't be surprised. We may not have been anticipating this, but we don't imagine that Caesar is surprised to find that Antony has gone back to Cleopatra. Um, and it's not that we were anticipating it or that we're surprised that he's not surprised or anything like that. It's just when it happens, someone like Caesar is bound to know that it will happen. The most trivial version of this, but just to give you a, a sense of what I'm talking about, this is a kind of TV trope version of it, is um, the way if you know a character's name, just on some trivial TV show, um, not that any TV shows are trivial, but if you know a character's name, um, and then that character um, enters a new scene and meets some people and we're watching the whole scene and someone, you know, take Barry, for example, and someone says, so how long have you been living in LA, Barry? Um, and it doesn't occur to us that Barry has never been introduced to this person or that his name has never been mentioned in the scene yet. We know his name. And so the fact that someone else, do you guys know what I'm talking about in TV? It's, it's like one of those things that's, that's just completely standard in um, any drama is that there, uh, you don't waste time naming characters whose names we already know. Um, they just don't have to be named again um, because that's a waste of time. It's the same way, this is a pet peeve of mine, at the end of phone conversations, intense phone conversations in movies or TVs, people just hang up without saying goodbye. Um, and once you notice that, uh, you'll never not notice it. Um, but uh, again, the, the, it, it, it's the same sort of thing. Once the information is known, there's no reason for any other information to be part of the exposition. Um, once we know it, it's 
it's a known thing. And that would be, I think that's a really good um, uh, rule of thumb for dramatic exposition. Once the audience knows it, it's a known thing unless the default is that it's a known thing. Once the audience knows it, the default is it's a known thing. And I think that's a really important um, technical fact about how drama works and um, a technical fact of any expertise in drama. I think beginning playwrights will think, well, how am I gonna um, get this person to know her name? Um, someone will have to introduce them. And no, you just don't need it. You absolutely don't need it. But what Shakespeare does with that is to make it this technical fact into an enormously important way of characterizing what it is that, that um, people are relying on when they are trying to manipulate each other's characters. Um, they are relying on the known thing which is, a no, which is known by the audience. Once it's known, it's part of that world and available to anyone. Um, as a default, it's available to anyone. So it wasn't available to Octavia, she didn't know, but, um, but it's clear, that's clearly, um, uh, that's, that's, um, that has to, she has to opt into not knowing, or the play has to opt her into not knowing because she has to express surprise when Caesar calls her a castaway. You could imagine a very short, a shortened version, an edited version of Antony and Cleopatra with um, Caesar saying that ever I should call thee castaway and she would answer, I know, right? And then Caesar would say, but don't worry, we're going after him. Um, and the audience wouldn't be surprised by that. But um, in this case, the audience want, the, Shakespeare wants the audience to, um, see that Caesar is using this as an excuse and therefore he has to um, express what the excuse is, um, but that it is an excuse, it comes from the fact that it's a known thing. Does that make sense to people? Um, I, th I think we're at the heart of Shakespeare's expertise as a dramatist here. So not Shakespeare as poet, but Shakespeare as just someone who really knows how drama works. Elvie, your hands up. Um, Follow-up question. So, sure. like, how much does the authorial intent place in here? Um, so, if we back to the question of whether uh, Octavia loves Antony, then, like, does it matter what Shakespeare was thinking when he was um, creating this character of Octavia? Or... Oh, okay. So, or is that exactly um, what the negative capability is all about? So, like Shakespeare is intentionally leaving this room for all possible interpretation without really giving the direction of what you're supposed to think? So, this, here, here you get into interesting theoretical questions. Um, what I'm going to say is, of course, we want to know what Shakespeare thought, um, but the only evidence we have for what Shakespeare thought is the play itself. So how can you know what Shakespeare wanted? 
um, by looking at the play. There's no other way of doing it. Now, if people disagree, um, then there, it's not that Shakespeare is a trump card where we could possibly find his notes for the play. Um, and um, because, and this is part of what Keats meant by negative capability, um, which is uh, what Keats was pointing out is that it's really impossible to know, that it's amazingly impossible to know um, what Shakespeare's goal was, um, except um, by looking at the goals of his individual characters. Um, but it's really, really hard to say, oh, in this play, Shakespeare wanted to write a warning against um, too much promiscuity. Um, this, you can never get that out of Shakespeare. You can never turn him into a moralist of that sort. You can never get a moral out of his plays. The very famous example of this um, is uh, Thomas Reimer in the 17th century. Um, so he's a, he was a restoration figure and he hated Othello. And he said the problem with Othello was um, that uh, he was trying to figure out the moral of the play and um, the moral of the play seemed to be, ladies, look to your linen. That is, make sure that you know where your handkerchiefs are at all times, um, because he couldn't get any other moral out of the play. And um, that idea that you can't get a moral out of a Shakespeare play, I think that's right. I think we all know that. It's not that we can't say, you know, that, that you should treat old people well um, because um, um, they can suffer even, even if they're King Lear, even if they're mad and cranky and so on. Yeah, obviously, but that's just, um, uh, you're just looking at human beings. What you're not doing is, Shakespeare never writes a play which um, is a fable, never writes a play um, in which there's something that you should learn um, about how to act in life that you didn't already know before the play started. Um, what Shakespeare does is he gets you really interested in his characters. And um, so how do we know what Shakespeare meant? Really, we can only know it through what we, what we take his characters to mean. Now, if you're a reader, you're going to take his characters to mean what you take them to mean if you're reading the plays. And as some of you know, um, and I think I, I said this in this class before, I think reading Shakespeare is a really, really important thing to do because I think that Shakespeare originally wrote to be read. You know, the standard thing to say is, well, when you read Shakespeare, you're not reading him the way he originally meant his plays to be um, consumed because they were supposed to be performed. And when we're reading them, we're not getting the performance and that's really terrible. Then the romantics, the ones who preferred Shakespeare's King Lear to Tate's, for example, and I did mention this in class, um, were writing essays about um, how Shakespeare couldn't be performed, um, writing essays with titles like um, on the fitness of Shakespeare's plays for dramatic representation. And the answer is they weren't fit for dramatic representation because they, um, there were no actors who could do the plays well enough. Um, it was simply impossible. Um, Hazlitt says that, Charles Lamb says that. And, um, but leaving that aside, 
Shakespeare certainly intended to be read before he intended to be performed because the actors had to read the roles. In order to perform them, they first had to learn them. And in order to learn them, they had to read them. And what that means is that the actors are reading as we are reading and they are getting their characters, getting a sense of character from reading as we get a sense of character from reading. Now we all disagree about characters. Lots of people, you know, to um, take to take an example, a line that I'm obsessed with in Shakespeare is Hamlet saying, um, "A man's life is no more than to say one. The interim is mine," and that to me seems a very, very quiet certainty that only the present moment matters. I was reading 19th century interpretations of that line. And the 19th century interpretation of that line is this is Hamlet um, being amazingly threatening that the interim is mine, I own it entirely. And his life, Claudius's life is no more than to say one, boom, I can get him like that. So that's the total opposite interpretation um, from my interpretation of what Hamlet is saying there. And so here I go, um, and this is the last theoretical thing that I'll say today, um, but to what for me is a really important principle of interpretation. Um, so the question, how do you interpret the words of the dead? That's tons of literary theory is reduces to that question. Um, if someone is dead and they can't mean anything because they're not there to mean anymore, how can we know what they mean, since they're not meaning anyhow. So the great um, legal theorist, Ronald Dworkin, who is, um, uh, uh, he died about 10 years ago, I think, maybe more, um, an interpreter of the Constitution, wrote, a great, if any of you is going to law school, you should read um, his book called um, Taking Rights Seriously, um, really a fantastic thinker and legal theorist also did some um, literary theory as well. And his view about both law and literature is in both cases, we're trying to interpret the meaning of texts whose meaners are no longer around. So if you're trying to interpret the constitution, um, the writers of the constitution are gone. So how do you know what the second amendment means since it's only words on a page and those who meant the second amendment are not there to mean it anymore. How do you interpret it? So Dworkin's principle, which I think is has going for it the fact that it's also what we do all the time, all the time, listening to um, uh, listening listening to progressive rock, listening to a pop song, watching a 1930s movie. Dworkin's principle is that the is that you should interpret anything that you feel like interpreting. That is that, that speaks to you so that you want to interpret it. You should interpret it in such a way that it is the best possible version of itself that it could be. In other words, your interpretation is one which is guided by what makes it best. Now, people will argue about what makes something best and the 19th century critics of Hamlet will think it makes it best if Hamlet turns out to be ferociously ready 
in Act Five, whereas I think it makes it best if Hamlet has understood something about the um, uselessness of trying to have power in the world or control outcomes. Um, and so you can argue, you can disagree with people about what makes something best. That's not what Dworkin is saying. Um, what he's saying is the interpretation that the best, the, the, the possible interpretation that makes it the best possible work it can be, that's the interpretation that you should use. And what that means is, for example, if you think it would be really, really cool if it turned out that Hamlet came from the 21st century and um, uh, was actually someone in this class and then went back to um, the 11th century and was written about in the 17th century, um, that would be so much better than anything else. Yeah, maybe it would be, but it's not a possible interpretation of Hamlet. Um, so it's a cool one and it can be your own science fiction time loop um, movie if you want it to be, but it's impossible that that's what Shakespeare meant. So that's why the word possible really matters. Um, it has to be the best interpretation it could possibly be, not the best interpretation if you could change everything um, that you wanted. So when directors and when actors play roles, um, well, uh, so, so yeah, let me just finish by saying this. Uh, we'll, we'll pick up on um, Tuesday. But um, when one, one thing that Shakespeare does, and again, um, I've said this before, but, but now's a reason to really insist on it, is he writes his roles so that actors trying to be center stage and trying to make their own roles the most um, present or the most um, vivid roles that they can, actors trying to upstage each other, they're doing the same sort of thing. They're interpreting their roles to be the best possible roles that they can be. Um, you know how when you audition for something and someone gives you a role and you're disappointed and then the director says, no, 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 you don't understand what a good role it is. Um, Shakespeare really wants everyone to think they have a great role. Um, you know, obviously not every trivial role, but most roles, if as an actor you play the part as the best possible part that you could have, the plays work best. So that Shakespeare, in a sense, this is a meta thing to say about his intention, but the meta intention that Shakespeare has is that he should be interpreted as the best, in the best possible way he can be by every actor, by every director, by every production. And the reason Shakespearean productions are just so um, fruitful, why you can watch Shakespeare all the time, why it works to watch Shakespeare all the time, the reason they're so fruitful is that, um, they're, that, that um, he's written them so that people trying to make them the best roles they can be, um, even if they disagree about what's best, will be interpreting in a way that is very powerful. Okay, um, Arya, are you raising your hand or? No, okay, um, so questions, comments, concerns?
Actually, I still have a last question, but I know it's way past time, so okay, I don't want to go It's not way past time, two minutes past time. Go ahead, Elvie. Um, so I guess, um, okay, I'm, I'm not sh even sure whether I should be asking this question because it might sound a little offensive to a Shakespeare scholar. <laughs> no, go ahead. Um, so, like, just for example, if a really poor play, yeah, if someone writes a really poor play and he creates all this really flat and maybe even deranged characters, um, that doesn't totally make sense, but a little bit sense if you try to make out of it. Like, can we also say that this play has negative capability. Like, what's the line between the true, genuine, valuable negative capability versus what's just people making out of it? And that also applies to what you say about the best interpretation that could possibly be made. Then I guess the question is, when you are reading Shakespeare, you know it's already be recognized as a canon. So you are free to go to make the best interpretation that could possibly be made. But then when you're reading something that's not made a canon, um, how are you, like, is there a standard or how can you tell this work is of real value? instead of something else? Well, I think, I think that's a really good question and you're quite right to, to um, I'm gonna turn that on its head um, and answer very briefly, um, but you're, you're quite right to ask that question. Um, one, the way I'm gonna turn it on its head is to say that um, uh, canonization itself is an act of, of interpretation. And um, the reason that the idea of a canon, you know, there's a lot of anti, um, a lot of anti-canon argument that uh, that those things in the canon are treated as sacred and holy and as better than everything else. Um, that is um, a reasonable argument, but it's also an argument that lots of people who don't like so-called canonical literature don't like because everyone has their own canon. Um, but the basic idea of a canon is um, the, best the best interpretations of these works turned out to be possible. Maybe that's a way of putting it. Um, so that things become canonized when powerful interpretations turn out to be possible interpretations. And so what I'm doing is, is, is reversing cause and effect by saying that. And to, just to give one example, if you were to read, how many people have seen Casablanca, the movie? Um, okay, the rest of you should watch it over the weekend. Um, you know, it's, it's in a sense the one perfect movie and it's not perfect, but it's completely great. Um, if you read the play that Casablanca is based on, it's not good. And if you were only to read the screenplay for Casablanca, it's not a good screenplay. 
Um, there's just a lot of turgidity, a lot of really bad lines, a lot, there are a lot of moments where it turns out Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman had to reshoot the scene over and over and over again because they would just burst out laughing at how terrible the lines were. Um, so what you have is you have an absolutely canonized movie and a rightly canonized movie whose script stinks. And what happened was the actors found a way to turn that script into the best possible thing that it could be, which is the movie Casablanca. So here we actually have a really good example of knowing that the script stinks and knowing that what makes it great is what the actors did. Um, but, and you can tell that over time. Um, you can, uh, one way you could describe Shakespeare is to say that Shakespeare um, he's not genius proof, but he's idiot proof. Any decent reading of a Shakespeare play, any high school version of a Shakespeare play is actually good. It's really hard to see um, a Shakespeare play that fails because um, the actors were incompetent. Um, Shakespeare plays will fail when actors try to do um, uh, uh, crazy things with them. Um, but, but Shakespeare's plays more than any other set of plays are idiot proof. Casablanca is not idiot proof. Um, Casablanca can only work if it's performed by geniuses. But Shakespeare will work in um, an astonishingly large percentage of performances. And um, that's therefore a way of giving the credit to Shakespeare rather um, than to um, the actors who are performing him, because it turns out lots and lots of different actors can, can make him great in lots and lots of different ways. And that could be a definition of what makes something canonical. Um, that is that it is, we're not looking at the intention of the author as though that's something we can know separate from the work, separately from the work. We're looking at the work as something which um, is, turns out um, that it is possibly great, that there are many, many different possibilities for its greatness. So um, there's no negative capability in Casablanca. Um, you absolutely need actors who are geniuses and who don't miss a step. Um, and almost no one could have done Casablanca. There've been remakes of Casablanca that have been terrible. Um, people got the idea, let's remake Casablanca. Um, I think there, there was a TV show that was a remake of Casablanca where there was an episode each week and there was another movie version of Casablanca and they're completely unwatchable. The other movie version is, is the script is the same, totally unwatchable. Um, Shakespeare, unless people are intending to sabotage it, um, it's almost always um, uh, really good. And so that's just a way of saying that um, Shakespeare inhabits a space of possibility or to use Keats's word capability that most things don't, but that there are other things that do. It's not only Shakespeare, um, but um, it's Keats too. But uh, for Keats, it was preeminently Shakespeare. I think it's Homer as well. You know, the idea that um, uh, the argument, is there a Homer or not? Um, we know almost with as much certainty as we can know anything that the Iliad and the Odyssey were not written by the same person. And um, 
with almost as much certainty, we know that the, neither the Iliad nor the Odyssey were written by one person. But as canon, it's the production of someone called Homer. They both are. And if you ask, and who is this Homer? Homer is the person that the canon projects as the originator of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, and every person contributed to the Iliad and the Odyssey, just the way every actor who contributes to a Shakespeare play is contributing to the authority of the text, the possible authority of the text to be interpreted as um, in, with many, many different possibilities of, of, of power. So that may sound a little bit convoluted, but um, I think it's true. Okay, see you guys on Tuesday. Stay healthy. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.